It is a great privilege to have a baby dedication. And we have a number of parents that are dedicating their children today. I just want to begin with um, just reading a passage of scripture here, um, which says in Psalm 139, verse 13, For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen mine unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That passage just speaks to the truth that we have been made by God. We are not accidents. We, have been, we are purposeful creations by God, intentional by Him, because He loves us and He wants us to have life and to know fellowship with Him. Psalms also says, Psalm 127, that children are a gift from God. This is not what we're about to do, a, a, um, a baby baptism. There are many church traditions that do that, but that's not what we will be doing. Um, this is a baby dedication. It is the parents saying that they pledge to raise their children in the fear and admonition of God, to know Christ personally. So we're not going to baptize the babies because nowhere in the Bible do we find it either commanded or illustrated to do so. According to the New Testament, we believe that only those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation should be baptized. But we do believe that it is appropriate for believing parents to publicly present their children to the Lord and to publicly promise to raise their children in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. So that's what we're going to do. And I already hear some babies anxious to get up here. And so we don't have enough room on the platform for all the folks that are coming up. So if you would just come and stand at the front of the platform here, and I'll stand with you parents and the children that are being um, dedicated. Um, and I wanted to say thank you to the Dornicks, Martha and Ron for the beautiful flowers this morning um, for the baby dedication. So parents and kids, come on up. We actually have one fewer family than we're going to have. We're going to have nine families. We have eight, but one of the families that were a little ill and couldn't come, the kids were. And I'm going to just let the folks here um, tell us their names and the name of their children, child or children, and then I'll make a few more remarks. So look at this good spread here. You think we're having a baby boom here at Bernie Bible or something. All right. So why don't we start down here with Alina. Um, I'm Alina, and this is Valeria Martin. Kevin can't be here this morning. He's working. Um, for his hill, the slave driving place up there. Okay. <laughs> and then John? Thanks. Michael, my wife, Brooklyn, and this is our son, Ford. 
I'm Justin, this is my wife, Eliza, and this is our son, Adler. Hi, I'm Kimberly, this is my husband, Brett, this is Chloe, she's five, and Ellen. Great, thanks. Well, we are so thankful for each of you, and so glad that you want to have your children know the Lord and to see Him take first place in their lives. God has given Christian parents a tremendous responsibility to teach their children about God and His Word, the Bible, to encourage them to place their faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life, and to train them to walk in dependence upon Christ. So at this time, I'm going to ask the parents, I'm going to just read a pledge, and then I'm going to ask them just to respond when I'm finished with, I do. And then afterwards, I have a pledge for us as a congregation, okay? So parents, um, don't repeat after me, but just after I finish, just you would say, I do. I pledge before the Lord to teach our child diligently the ways and word of God, to speak of God's ways publicly and teach God's word, to make it my ambition and goal to not provoke my child to anger, but to bring him or her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to tell him or her of his sin and need of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and to live my life before him or her in such a way that he or she sees Christ in his word lived out in my life. And your response? Thank you. The kids are ready to take the stage here in a minute, so... So, congregation, if you would repeat after me, we at Bernie Bible Church pledge before the Lord Jesus Christ to encourage and exhort, help and comfort these parents, willingly giving of our time, talents and wisdom, in order to see that these children are brought up under the Word of God, to know Christ as their Savior, and to walk in His ways. Amen. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank You so much for each of these children. They are a gift from You. I thank you for their parents and their desire to see their kids raised up to know you and to walk with you. And Father, we do commend each of these young lives to you, that they would be truly lights for you in this dark world. We pray for your rich blessing on them, not only, Lord, that they would be healthy and strong, but God, more importantly, that they would simply walk humbly with you, knowing you personally, and having lives that are yielded to you in faith and dependence upon Christ. And so, God, we pray that each of these children at an early age would place their faith in Jesus and come to know Him as their very life. We pray for Your rich wisdom and grace for each of these parents with the immense charge that they have, God, that they would put themselves at Your disposal for You to bless them and enable them for all that they need. And we commend them to You in the love of Christ. Amen. Thanks so much. Got a few, couple of future preachers there.
What a delight. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to break from um, being in 1 Corinthians. But if you have your Bible, if you turn to Luke chapter 10, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians next Sunday. And if you would stand as you find that passage, Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read beginning in verse 30. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put, them on his own, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let me pray. I thank you again, Father, for the richness of your word, for all that you have revealed here for us. And I pray, God, again, that we would just have hearts to hear and that you would be honored and bless God as we yield to you in faith and obedience. We just want to know you and to walk with you and for Jesus to be exalted in our lives. And we thank you, God, for your ministry to us through your word to bring that about. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I've been, um, I don't normally... Um, give a Sanctity of Life message on Sanctity of Life Sunday, but with all these babies up here, I couldn't help but be thinking about that, and it seemed a little more appropriate than the next passage that we're going to be looking at in 1 Corinthians, which is about whether tongues have ceased or not. I couldn't see much how coordination with, with that. So um, the passage here about the Good Samaritan, though, is really a passage, um, I didn't really think about that until recently, but it's really a passage about the Sanctity of Life. And not just, it's not, there's no baby mentioned here, and the sanctity of life is more than just about babies. But it's about how life, human life, has been made in the image of God. And therefore, every human being has dignity and has worth. Not because of what we produce or what we're able to contribute, but we are born with worth. In fact, from the very moment of conception, at that very, very moment, something unique has been created, and it is different from everything else in terms of life that God has made. When God made Adam and Eve, he, he separated them, and, and, and with the distinctive words, let us make man in our own image. Nothing else that God created is made in his image. And because we have been made uniquely in the image of God, we have great worth and dignity. You may feel like a loser. You may feel like your life is a failure. But God looks at you and says, immense worth and dignity. 
So much so that God says, if anybody should take the life of one of these people, he should die. So that, that is really a statement about our worth, that we are of such value that to murder a human being should result in the death of the one who did the murder. We are of such worth that God said that he was willing to give his son for us. Both of those things speak about the immense inherent worth that we have as people made in the image of God. Children are a miracle. And I know I've heard so many times, parents, and certainly with my experience, that when that first baby that you have comes into the world and you look at that child and go, this came from God. That this is so beyond anything I could ever do. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's one of the most humbling and, and, and spiritually sensitive time in a parent's life is when that first child is born. The scripture encouraged first-time parents with newborn boys in particular to dedicate those boys in the temple to God. It was a statement that God gave this child. And it wasn't to be just boys that were God-given or just the firstborn that was God-given, but from the first child being born especially is the recognition that God did this. And this wasn't something that we did. There is great worth, great value, For every child that's ever born, no matter what their future potential might be, they have been made in the image of God and therefore have great value. But it's not just the child. And when he stops being a child, he doesn't stop having value and worth. It is every human being, no matter what their stage and condition of life, even to the very elderly who who are no longer able to produce and live an active life, they are no have no less dignity and worth than the newborn child or a person in the fit and prime of life. God has created us. God said, we we are not holy in and of ourselves, but we have been set apart as being people made in the image of God. The seventh day was the day that God rested, and God said, treat that day as holy. The day was not holy, but God said, treat it differently. Because this is the day that I've taken my rest and I want you to live a life that recognizes what I have set apart. So the the, the day wasn't holy, but God was holy and God has set it apart. And what God treats as holy and, and as separate, we should as well. Now, to this passage here. The story of the Good Samaritan is, is, is not something that just stands alone. It's preceded by a question that a lawyer asked, coming to Jesus to seek to test him. Verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can go back to Luke 10, 25. I just want to make some observations here and then bring it to some application with um, all of life, really, but especially raising children. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. So this was not a man who was coming to Jesus with an honest question. This was a man who considered himself, and everyone else considered him to be an expert in the Old Testament. He's probably memorized the whole Old Testament. He's at least memorized the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which which, which, which was called the Law. This man has it down. He is an expert. He is a scholar. He is highly respected for his intellect and his knowledge. And he is not coming to Jesus to learn something. 
Jesus was viewed as ignorant, as uneducated. You remember one of the Pharisees says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They didn't think Jesus had anything to contribute to them, nothing they could learn from him. This was solely to try to embarrass him and to prove him wrong. He came to him to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man, is again, is not a genuine question. It's a testing question. Because this guy, as an expert in the law, believes that the law doesn't say that you can inherit eternal life. The law, he would say, teaches that you can only obtain eternal life as you keep the law. And he hears Jesus saying something else. And so this is to expose Jesus' teaching as to be contradictory to the Old Testament law, to Scripture. And if he can prove that Jesus' teaching contradicts Scripture, then he can have Jesus dismissed. That's what this is about. And so he says, I know what Jesus is saying. Believe in me, and you shall be saved. And not a word about keeping the law. Is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink, and he shall have rivers of living water flowing out of him. Is anyone hungry? I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven, that whoever eats of me and drinks my blood shall have life and shall not die. These are the statements that Jesus is making, and this man knows it very well. This man knows that Jesus is preaching grace and life through faith in Christ. He is not preaching life by keeping the law. And so he's trying to expose that Jesus' teaching is contradictory to Scripture so that he can cut Christ's legs out from under him and say, this is a false teacher, a heretic, a false prophet. You should have nothing to do with him. The phraseology even, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is not Old Testament language. The Old Testament language is, do this and live. This lawyer is using Jesus' terminology and is asking, what is the essence of your teaching? He wants to take the bottom line of Jesus' system and compare it with the bottom line of Judaism so that he can say, your system is wrong. That's his intention. So Jesus asked him a question. He was prone to do that. Good teachers don't always just give the answer. Sometimes they'll Spur thinking by asking a question in response. He wasn't being evasive. He was trying to get this man to answer his own question. What is written in the law? He doesn't say, what have I been saying all this time? He says, because what Jesus has been saying all this time carries no weight with this man. What is written in the law? Because he knew that's where this man put his trust. How does it read to you? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right, you have answered correctly. And then in quotes, hopefully that's in, Italian, in um, capital letters in your Bible, do this and you will live. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 18 verse 5 where Moses says, this is the commandment. Do this, and you shall live. 
And so this, Jesus was not adding to Scripture. He was pointing this man right back to the Old Testament that he placed his trust in. Do this. Keep the law. And you will live. What is going on? Let's just stop with that for a second. If you can have your, open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We were actually making some reference to some of these verses this morning in the Sunday school class. But Romans, beginning in chapter 2. Paul seems to support initially the idea that you can keep the law and be saved. Romans chapter 2, verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Wow. And that is what it seems to be Jesus is saying to this lawyer. Do what you've just said, and you shall live. And Paul says, the doers of the law shall be justified. Well, that seems pretty clear. Works-based salvation. Let's keep reading. Look over in chapter 3 of Romans and verse 20. Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So even though he seems to be saying, if you keep the law, you'll be saved, then Paul says, ain't going to happen. You're not going to keep the law, and you're not going to get saved that way. And then later in chapter 3, verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Couldn't be clear. Go over to, the, to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Again, several statements here that are crystal clear that we cannot be justified on the basis of the law. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, not by keeping the law, but he lives by faith. Galatians three twenty two. The scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here with this lawyer. He's taking him back to the law that he trusts in. The man who's just said, if I do these things, then I've done what the law says. And Jesus says, do it and you'll live. Thing is, you can't do it. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, not by keeping the law. So going back to Luke chapter 10. So Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
but wishing to justify himself. You see, he didn't come to Jesus seeking justification. Not from Jesus. He didn't come to Jesus as a man who truly recognized that he was without eternal life and wants to receive eternal life. He came to embarrass Christ and to prove Jesus as being contradictory with Scripture and to justify himself. But wishing to justify himself, he said, Who is my neighbor? Good lawyer that he is, right? Looking for a technicality, drilling down on a particular word and saying, What does that mean? Because that could mean a lot of things. And see, and, 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 and the Jews felt that their neighbor was other Jews. And there's scripture that would support that. Your neighbor, your fellow Israelite. And so he could go to those passages and say, my neighbor is a fellow Israelite. And it's like Jesus says, I'm really glad you brought that question up. Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I got the chance to see this road last spring, and those of you that are going to Israel this spring, you're going to get able to be able to see it. Same road, 2,000 years old road, still unpaved, dirt road, and it, just, and it just winds down through those desert mountaintops, and it is a desolate, isolated place. It is a place ripe to be robbed. You took your life in your hands when you traveled that road alone. And this man, we don't know anything about him. We don't know whether he was Jew, Gentile, or Samaritan. We don't know anything about him except he is just a man. And that's all we need to know. He had worth because he's a human being. And this man fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and they went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, right, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. We're not, we aren't told why. Maybe he was afraid the other, those robbers were lurking nearby, and what happened to that man could happen to him. Maybe he saw a man that wasn't of the right race, and this was nothing but just pure prejudice. Maybe he just felt he was too busy to be inconvenienced. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but as I was preparing, I came across a story where um, a, sem a, a seminary wanted to run this scenario by its own students, didn't tell them about it. And it got a group of students preaching students and said, listen, we want you guys to prepare a message on this passage to be delivered on the radio. And they gave them times where they were supposed to show up at the radio station to record a message on the Good Samaritan. And so as these seminary guys, one at a time, were rushing to the radio station to make their radio appointment, none of them had ever been on the radio before, they're all keyed up about it, this is a big thing, I'm going to have to preach, I'm going to have to preach on the radio. Well, they had a man encounter every one of those students and fake a heart attack just outside the radio station to see what those stu seminary students would do. And every single student just ignored the guy to go in and give their sermon on the Good Samaritan. Quite the illustration of <laughs> we don't take these things to heart. 
So the priest goes by, walks on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now these would be professional religious people. A Levite and a priest. They make their living off of the Bible. They would be the last people that you would think who preaching the Bible and standing on the Bible would be this calloused and indifferent toward their fellow human being. But they are. Always reminds me when I read a passage like this of that time when my dad, many years ago, was driving through Bernie's before Bernie was a busy place and there was really only one stoplight in town. And, and um, he was driving through Bernie and he saw a man just standing there homeless, which back in those days you didn't see homeless people standing around in Bernie. But my dad was off to work and it was early in the morning and he just gave a sh- quick shoot-up prayer to the Lord. Lord, bless that man and take care of that man. Give him a warm bed to sleep in tonight. Came home from work. And that man was in his house. (laughs) And he's going, what happened? Well, my little brother came along and saw that guy and stopped and said, would you like a warm bed to sleep in tonight? (laughs) And so he brought him home. So my dad's prayers were answered. (laughs) Not in the way he thought, but the prayers were answered. Both of these men, the last that you would expect, just simply walked by. And then a certain Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. See, that compassion wasn't in the hearts of the other two men. These religious professionals who make their living off the Word of God, there wasn't any compassion in them. All three men saw the same victim. They saw the same need. And only one man responded. And it wasn't because he saw something different. It was because there was something different in him. Compassion. And this man, the Samaritan, is not a keeper of the word of God. I think it would be fair to say that this man is outside the instruction of Israel. He is not a person who is viewed as one who lives by the word of God. He was himself viewed as almost subhuman by the Jewish people. When the Assyrians took Israel captive, they literally just took them off the land and dispersed them all throughout their empire. But they wanted northern Israel to not just go barren um, and, 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 and still to be productive, and so they brought in people from other nations to populate northern Israel. They were idolaters. And God began sending lions to destroy those people because of their idolatry. And so the Assyrian Empire sent priests back and Levites back to northern Israel to instruct these pagans on how to worship God. And over the years, those um, people from a mixed um, ethnicity began to, to intermarry with the Jewish people who were there in the land. And they're probably the descendants, the early um, descendants of the people that began to be called the Samaritans in the New Testament. When Nehemiah 
came to rebuild the city walls, and when Ezra came to rebuild the temple, the local people were giving them lots of difficulty. They would have been the Samaritans. So they're a mixed race, half Jew and half Gentile, and they were the first people to oppose the Jews when they came back into the land. So with that history, they are hated, absolutely hated. No one would take the time of day for them. If there was a Samaritan laying in the road, they wouldn't just walk over, walk around. They'd probably walk over him and kick him as they went. They hated these people. I'm sure they prayed that God would destroy them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. They saw them as having no value and no place on this planet. But it is the Samaritan who stops and helps. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came up upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Where did that come from? Well, they can't say it came from the law because he wasn't a keeper of the law. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them on his own beast, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he didn't just dump him. Cared for this man. Man may not even been able to give his name. And he sacrificially, lovingly cared for him. And on the next day, He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. This is true compassion, true love. And it is rare. No thought to self. In fact, great inconvenience and sacrifice to self. I think we could say this is true Christianity what it should be. Every human being has worth and dignity. I hate to admit that I have a very strong gag reflex. I don't like it. I can't even get my teeth x-rayed without gagging. Why? I don't know. Um, I inherited that from my mom. And I can remember my first college um, ministry assignment was in a convalescent center. And it was not a pleasant place. I'd never been in a place that bad. Many of the folks there were not in their right mind, wandering the halls. And and really, for somebody who'd never been exposed to it, it, it was shocking. And the odors were horrendous. And I can remember my mom, with the same gag flex, she would purposely spend really quite a bit of time going down to the nursing homes and the convalescent centers visiting people. And I remember asking her, I said, Mom, how do you do that? Because I don't want to gag in front of these people. You know, you know but I says the odors are so overpowering. And so she told me a little trick she had. She says, I carry a handkerchief in my purse. And I drench it in perfume. And when I find the gag reflex starting to come up, I take out that handkerchief and just put it up to my nose where that's what I'm smelling instead of the odors. So I started putting cologne on my hands. And, you know, I'd, you know, same thing, kind of put, you know, rub my 
lip a little bit and breathe the odors because they were dear people. Dear people. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're not in their right minds and they're not healthy, but these are people who've been made in the image of God. There's nothing they can contribute right now, but maybe they're still here on the planet, not because of what they can give, but because of what God wants to do in me and to show toward them that, that true humanity, that, that true Christ-likeness is expressed in how we treat the least among us. And Jesus said that in Matthew 24 and 25 when he was speaking about um, coming again and the judgment that's going to take place and that people are going to be judged based upon what they did with the least of those who were among them. Did we care for them and render aid to them? Did we help them, visit them when they were ill and in jail? Very practical, loving service. And so after Jesus finishes this story, which would have been just shocking to this man, he asks them the question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, we know the answer. It's obvious. It's like these are one of those questions that you, you don't dare fail this because it is so simple. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, watch his answer, the one who showed mercy toward him. The one who, how did Jesus describe him? a Samaritan man. And this lawyer can't even choke out the word, the one who showed mercy. He, won't even, uh, he can't even let that word Samaritan cross his lips. That's how prejudiced this man is. He just says the one who. I won't even mention who he was. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, why would he say that? I appreciated this writer in making some of these, these observations about this lawyer and how Jesus is handling him. According to the Old Testament and what Jesus is making reference to, to be justified under the law, you have to be perfect. Perfect. You have to, as this man quoted, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Who can say they've done that? Even this lawyer can't admit that he has truly done that. No one has. And the law also says... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Who would want to stand before God and say, I have kept the law? In Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, similar question, how can I obtain eternal life? Same mindset. And he says, Jesus says, keep the law. And he says, I've kept it from my childhood. I've kept the law. And Jesus goes, okay. Then go sell everything you have 
and then come follow me. And the guy walked away grieved. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And that man just said, I've kept all the law. He is deceived. And Jesus knows he's deceived. And he goes, okay, really? You've kept all my commandments. And that would include have no other God before me. Then you just sell everything you've got because it's not your God. What's it going to matter? Just give it away. And the guy can't do that. And Jesus has exposed him. Possessions is his God, not God. The law commands us to do what we cannot persistently. We cannot and we do not persistently obey it. If you want to be saved by your works, by law keeping, then you must be saved by keeping the whole law. Not most of the time, but all the time. Not most of its commands, but all its commands. Jesus is not teaching works as a means of salvation here. He is actually teaching that doing good works, law-keeping, cannot save anyone because no one can keep the law perfectly. This man asked the question, how can I be saved? Jesus answers, you tell me according to the law, which he trusts in. And he responds, one can be saved by perfectly and persistently obeying the whole law with one's whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The lawyer is now the one on the spot. The system he is seeking to defend is a system that cannot save anyone. In seeking to condemn Jesus, the lawyer has just condemned himself and the whole world. Because nobody can keep the whole law. Based on the law, what shall I do to get eternal life? And the answer of Jesus is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can see why Jesus doesn't need to go any further with this man. The law was given as a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. So God, Jesus is using the law to show this man his need for faith in Jesus. He has to beat this man up with the very law he trusts in before this man will realize it is futile to trust in the law. This man will not turn to Christ as the Messiah until he first turns from his dependence on law to save him. What is Jesus trying to teach this Jewish lawyer here by telling him this story? He's trying to teach him, trying to show him that this lawyer's religious system is completely bankrupt. It will not give him life. Jesus sought to show this self-confident lawyer that by his own definitions, law-keeping was not the pathway to eternal life because no one is able to live up to the demands of the law. In order for one to be saved by law-keeping, he must fulfill every requirement of the law all the time and with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. This was impossible. This lawyer's confidence in the law and his ability to keep it was the heart of his resistance to Jesus Christ. He confronted Jesus because he perceived correctly that our Lord posed a threat to Judaism. 
This lawyer was unwilling to accept faith in the Lord Jesus as the way to eternal life because his whole life was devoted to the preservation and the promotion of law-keeping. And until the lawyer saw the bankruptcy of his religious system, he could not cast himself on Jesus for salvation by faith. I want us to not miss the point that the two men who walked around the one who had been beaten up and left for dead were very religious men and viewed as being very good men. But there was no compassion and no mercy in their hearts. Law is not going to produce compassion. It's only when I try to keep the law and realize my inability to keep the law that I'm going to begin to see my need for mercy and then in turn give mercy as I have first received mercy. We love because we are first shown love. We are merciful because we were given mercy. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive because the law told us to do so. We don't love because the law tells us to love. And we don't show mercy because the law tells us to show mercy. Really, these things are not produced and, and, and welled up in our hearts until we first experience them. And we experience them because of the grace of God. Because we are in need. It's good to be faced with our inability and bankruptcy and absolute need. And I think that's one of the reasons that little children coming into a home are so greatly used to inspire trust in the Lord. I know God certainly used them in my life that way. And I'm not talking about the problems that come as they get older, but right from the very beginning, Many, many nights, I can remember standing over the cribs of our babies or kneeling in the floor beside their beds after they'd gone to bed and crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I have nothing to give this child except Jesus. And I don't even know how to do that. I am helpless to raise this child as this child deserves. This child is a miracle, a gift from you. And left in my hands, I will destroy this gift that you've given. I am in absolute need of you. Proverbs says, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. Try that in your own strength. Just try to pin that to the refrigerator and see what kind of child you produce. If you are not living in dependence upon God, all of your training... Is futile. This is why Psalm 27, the same psalm that says children are a gift from God, it starts out by saying the one who labors to build the house apart from the Lord labors in vain because the Lord builds the house. God brought these children into the world. And only God can raise these children up. He uses parents. But apart from God, you are not going to see the result that you want and God wants. They have to be raised to know 
that they, yes, are loved by God and have immense worth by, before God, but they have to be raised to know they need God. And they need to see that need for God in their own parents. And if your children see nothing else but people, a mom and dad who are saying, Jesus, I need you. You've given them the greatest gift you could give them. To have a mom and dad be humble enough to say, I messed up. Would you forgive me? Painful. And I can certainly remember times having to do that with my kids. Spank them when, they, when I got it wrong. They didn't need to be spanked. I didn't take the time to listen, to hear well. Or they've seen something in my life that was an honoring to God. And I had to apologize and ask for their forgiveness. But it's in those very things, as they see a mom and dad express his or her need for the Lord and humble themselves before the Lord and before their children, it's much more likely to see those children embrace the same in their lives rather than to live proud, self-sufficient, independent lives. You want children who walk humbly, children who acknowledge their need and who come to Jesus for the strength that only he can supply. So when Jesus said to this man, go and do likewise, he knew better than anyone this man is going to go out and fall on his face and fail. And hopefully this expert in the law would come to the very real sense I may memorize the law. I may know the law. I can parse it for you and diagram it for you, but I can't keep it. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then to come back to the very man who thought he had nothing to offer and place his faith in him for salvation. That's where Jesus is going with this. He is wanting this man to be aware of his own need, bankrupt in heart, to see the lack of compassion and grace that's in him and see that those things are never going to be acquired by keeping the law, that he had hand himself over to the one who came to give himself for us. You can't acquire eternal life. It must be received through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't raise a child to walk in the ways of God. And as Major Ian Thomas used to say, you can't. God never said you could. But God can. And he said he would. What no greater ambition, Paul said, than to know Jesus and to walk with him. But you won't have the ambition as long as there's any thought in you that you're pretty good on your own. And if you think that, then God will say to you, pick a standard, any standard. Doesn't have to be the law of Moses. Pick a standard. What do you think makes a man good? Pick a standard and live by it all the time with all your heart, with all your mind, 
with all your strength. Doesn't have to be the 613 laws of the Old Testament. Pick anyone, any law, make up one. I think the thing that makes a man good is that he works really hard. As long as he's known as a hard worker, God says, okay, you want to be judged by that? You want to stand before a holy God in eternity and say, there is one law, be a hard-working man, and I was a hard-working man. God says, okay, let's just pull that apart. You always worked hard. There was never a time when you shirked, never a time when you were slack, never a time when you weren't putting in a good day's wages. Never. You really want to be judged by that law? See, there is no person who is going to be able to stand before God because of any law. Whatever it is, lower the standard as low as you want it. And you will still be condemned. We can't keep the law. And there is no law that can give us life. We come before Jesus humbly to receive life. And when we do, we find the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, Romans 5. And we find ourselves caring and loving and showing mercy and compassion toward people that we would have never given the time of day before. And it's because of what God has done in our hearts, not because of what we have produced. Life is sacred, and God is good. And what a joy and privilege we have to walk humbly with our God. I will close this in prayer. I thank you for your ways, God, and that you will take us in what we are trusting in. And by your mercy and grace, you will show us that that trust will always fail us. But I thank you, God, for your word that says that those who trust in Jesus will never be disappointed because that trust will not fail. And I pray, God, especially for these parents that were stood here this morning with their children, that they would recognize, God, that you are the only one who can raise these children that you brought into this world, and that they would entrust themselves to you every day, every moment, themselves living with empty hands and open hearts for you to fill, that their one ambition would be to know Jesus and for Christ to make himself known through them to these young charges that they've put in their homes. And I do pray that each of these kids would see Christ in their parents, in us as a church, and that they would from an early age place their faith in Jesus for salvation. And they would know him as their very life. And God, I thank you that all life is dear and precious to you. Not just young children, but every age, every step, every condition and circumstance, Lord, that it is not based upon what we do, but life is of value because of who you are and we've been made in your image. And I thank you that life is lived the same way. You're not looking for people to do and to perform, but to trust in the one who has given them life. Thank you for making it clear and simple for us. In Jesus' name, amen.